Well, good morning. If you would, turn to the back of your bulletin, where you'll find at the bottom a portion of our statement of faith. I'm going to go ahead and read that. We go through one article of uh, our statement of faith each week. And so if you have any questions about what's in this particular article, this is Article 3. There are 18 articles in our statement of faith. You are welcome to, to ask myself or ask another person around you, and we'd be happy to try to elaborate a little bit more. But we as a church, as you'll see at the bottom there, believe in the fall of man. We believe humanity is the special creation of God, made in his own image. God created them male and female as the crowning work of his creation. The gift of gender is thus part of the goodness of God's creation. The gift of marriage consists of the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. And this gift models the way God relates to his people. God created the human race in holiness under his law. By voluntary transgression, however, humanity fell from that holy and happy state. As a result, all people are now sinners. Not by external compulsion, but by choice. They by nature entirely lack the holiness that is required by the law of God and are actively inclined to evil. Therefore, they are under just condemnation to a sentence of eternal ruin without defense or excuse. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can gather this morning and that we can be reminded that you have done something about our fallen state. Thank you for that. Lord, we pray that as we consider Christ this morning, that we'd be reminded of the goodness of the gospel. We pray that we would be a people here at this church that are willing to work hard at maintaining unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we'd be a people who are marked by love, the kind of love that covers a multitude of sins. Or that we'd be a people that are not easily offended, but are quick to overlook an offense because of the love that we have for one another. Thank you for your love toward us. Lord, we pray that our community... Westerville would experience this love. That we would be a church that is missionally engaged. That we seek opportunities in our workplaces, seek opportunities in the public square, seek opportunities with our friends and our families to take this good news of your love to them. Lord, we are thankful for Cross Point Church just down the road that seems to be doing a great job of this, proclaiming the gospel. We pray for your continued blessing on them. Lord, we pray for the First Southern Baptist Church of Johnstown as they search for a pastor. Lord, please give them a man who is firmly rooted on your word. Lord, do the same for First Baptist Church of Lancaster as they begin their pastoral search. And God, we pray that the congregations there will be built up and edified as they are taught the word faithfully. Lord, we think of other brothers and sisters around the world, particularly in Sudan, with the fighting that has broken out recently. Lord, we pray that you would protect them. Watch over them. Keep them from physical harm. Lord, we pray that you'd use this time in their lives to strengthen their faith. Lord, we pray that as the country of Sudan is in turmoil, that you would use that to lead many to your son. Lord, give the leaders 
of Sudan, as there's even question marks about who is leading that country. Lord, whoever is, God, we pray that you would grant them wisdom and that you would establish leaders who value righteousness. Righteousness is according to your law. Lord, you tell us in Proverbs 29 that when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. So God, we pray that the righteous would increase in Sudan. Lord, be with us as we close out our study of 1 Corinthians. Thank you for this letter. We pray that we'd be a people who don't just hear the word, but we'd be doers of the word also. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So my middle daughter, Lennon, she has several obsessions at this stage of life, but one of them is a puzzle that is about 25 pieces. You know what I'm talking about, like the wood puzzles that are big pieces that kids can easily put together. She likes to have other people put that together, and then she likes to flip it over and then say again. And she is not the one who tends to put it together. Occasionally she can get that thing together, but it's usually someone else who's putting it together for her. Now, with puzzles like that, and with really any size puzzle, you can take one piece, and you can pretty much see the general area where that thing's going to go. And you can get so fixated on that piece, and you can see some of the small details of that piece, and you can really appreciate that piece But if you fixate on that one piece for too long, you can miss out on the bigger, more beautiful picture. And 1 Corinthians is a book with plenty of puzzle pieces that you can fixate on for too long and miss the big picture of what is going on here. This church in Corinth was rife with problems. It had plenty of issues. We've talked, and we've said that there have been at least 10, but depending on how you divide it up, there could be more. And Paul makes the claim that in order to be unified as a church, they need to consistently go back to the gospel. He's trying to help them see that every problem that comes up within this church can be addressed by the good news of the gospel. And church, for us today, to maintain unity within our church we must return again and again and again to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so again, as, as we've looked at this book, we've consistently said that the unity, or excuse me, the theme of this book is unity in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard that countless times now. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 1.10, so if you turn in your Bibles, if you're, if you're using one of the blue provided Bibles, I believe that's going to start on page 952. 952. And here's what we're going to do. So normally, I would read the sermon text ahead of time before we jumped into it. We're looking at 16 chapters today. So we're not going to read the full sermon text. We're going to come to each text as we get there. However, um, in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 10, we see... Paul saying this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So he does not want there to be divisions among them, but he wants them to be united. And as we go through these 16 chapters, each time he brings that unity back to Christ. Now, Andy Nacelli a systematic theologian and a New Testament scholar has helpfully broken down 
the book of 1 Corinthians. He's written extensively on it, many articles, and even wrote a commentary on it. And he points out 10 issues that are addressed in this book of 1 Corinthians. And then he points out that there's a gospel solution for each of them. If you look in your bulletin, you will find our sermon notes. And you might be a little overwhelmed to see how many blanks there are there. But you'll find that we're going to look at 11 problems that came up in the First Corinthian, or excuse me, in the Corinthian church that we see in this book of First Corinthians. So, without any further ado, because we have a lot of ground to cover, problem one. Problem one, as we see in the first four chapters of this book, is division over leaders. Division over leaders. He says, Paul says this in chapter one, verse eleven. He says, "For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people." that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so rather than uniting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Corinthian church, they were dividing among their favorite leaders, their favorite Bible teachers, Paul, Apollo, Cephas. Some said, I follow Christ. They, that group, they got it right. Let's unite around Christ. And there were likely other names that Paul just didn't mention. But the problem here was that the Corinthian church, their confidence was in man, not in the Lord. 1 Corinthians uh, 2, if you flip over there just a little bit, it should just be a page if you even have to flip. Looking at verses 1 and 2, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So he's not trying to be an elaborate teacher. Why? Look at verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This church was dividing over leaders. And Paul says, don't unite yourself around leaders. Unite yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ because God, not his servants, builds his church. Which we see in Matthew 16. God will use his servants, but it's God doing the work in and through them. Then if you flip over to 1 Corinthians 3, in verse 5, Paul continues his argument here. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So brothers and sisters, let's unify around Christ, not around his teachers. Praise God for faithful teachers of the Bible. However, praise God for them. Not praise them. Don't fight around them. We don't boast in men. We boast in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who serves as a perfect mediator between God and man. No Bible teacher is able to do that. No leader in the church is able to do that. We boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. We boast in Christ and we unify around him because when the doctor gives you hard news, when you lose your job, when finances are extremely tight, the Lord, not man, 
is the one who provides peace that surpasses understanding. Unify around him. 1 Corinthians 1.31 Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Be reminded of what the Lord has done for you in Christ and unify and boast in him, not in his servants. Problem number two. The Corinthian church was tolerating unrepentant sin. And so each church, brothers and sisters, is made up of sinners. That's not a surprise. That's been true ever since the age of the church. In fact, acknowledging that you are a sinner is what brings you into the church. You acknowledge that you're a sinner, you confess that you need a Savior, and you're entrusting Christ to be that Savior. And now you're submitting to Him as your Lord, as your Master, as your authority. Doing that brings you into the church. Because you're recognizing that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And you're calling on the one and only one true Savior to take away our punishment. However, just because there is sin in the church, because we are sinners in need of a Savior, there's a difference between that and embracing unrepentant sin, like the Corinthian church was doing. That's what was going on there. If you look at 1 Corinthians 5, look at the first two, two verses there. Paul says this, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. So look, tolerating sin, at least what the Corinthians were doing, this, this toleration of this kind of sin was one that wasn't even tolerated among pagans, among non-believers in their day. And they were in a, in a city, Corinth, that had a lot of strange practices, a lot of pagan practices. But even the pagans would admit that what, this is not something that we would tolerate. But the Corinthian church was tolerating this unrepentant sin. And they were proud of it. So look, rebellion against God, unrepentant sin, that brought death and brokenness into the world. But it was through Christ that this sin is able to be removed, that the removal of sin is made possible, regardless of what that sin is, regardless of what your past is. If you're here today and you think, well, my sin is a little too bad for that. I would let you know that your sin is not more powerful than the power and grace of God. God has provided a way for your sin to be washed clean. And don't respond, church, to being washed by sin. Don't respond to that washing by then bringing in and tolerating unrepentant sin. Paul says in verses 6 through 7 of, of chapter 5, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So what's Paul getting at here? He's saying, look, you are a new people. Yes, you were, you were in sin. You were dead in your sin. But Christ has washed you of your sin. You still wrestle with sin. You still fight against it. But you don't embrace it anymore. And if you are a people who's been washed by your sin, then it's not consistent to then welcome sin in and rejoice in it. Don't do that. You've been washed by Christ. Address that person who's, who's in unrepentance and let them know that they too can be washed by Christ. Tolerating unrepentant sin, friends, is not loving. Our culture, our society will tell you that it's loving, that we don't want to push the person away. It is not loving. 
Failing to address sin is like a doctor who fails and refuses to let his patients know of difficult diagnoses just because he doesn't want to push them out of his office. Rather than give someone false assurance by never addressing their sin, let's lovingly call them to repentance and faith. And we can address that sin because of the gospel. Again, every problem that we see pop up, the gospel addresses. That's what Paul's trying to make the point of here. So now we, as we see someone who may be in unrepentant sin, we can address them like a doctor addresses a sick patient and say, brother, sister, here's the issue. Here's the bad news. But there's a cure. And that cure has a 100% success rate. How great would it be to be a doctor who can say that to every issue that comes through the office? I have a cure. There's a 100% success rate every time. We as Christians, we can do that. We can give someone hard news that they are in sin and that they need to repent and believe the gospel because we know that no matter what that sin is, no matter what the issue is, believing the gospel can wash away that sin. Praise God for that. Problem three. Lawsuits against one another. So in 1 Corinthians 6, what was happening was that the, the fellow members of the Corinthian church, when they would have an internal dispute, rather than settling it internally, they would take it to the public court. 1 Corinthians 6, 5, look there. Paul says, can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Is there no one wise enough in this church to settle a trivial dispute? It's a terrible testimony. When two Christians take a matter that could be resolved into the public court system. If you're familiar with our court system, you know that each case bears the name of those involved. So I'll, I'll just list a few popular ones. Roe v. Wade, Dobbs v. Jackson, Brown v. Board of Education. But here's the issue. Is that when two Christians who bear the name of Christ go into the court system, then it's Christ v. Christ. And the body of Christ loses. Furthermore, Christianity is a reconciliation religion. Like, like follow with me here. The, the irony here that these two people who have claimed that they've been reconciled to God through Christ are unable to reconcile with themselves. And then, so they go to those who have not been reconciled to then do the reconciling for them. It's a terrible testimony to the onlooking world. How sad when those who have experienced reconciliation with God are unable to reconcile with one another. Don't go to secular courts seeking justification. Reconcile with one another. Through Christ, individuals are reconciled and justified to God. How much more can we be reconciled with one another? Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you don't need to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18, he says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. If you are here in this room and if you are a follower of Christ, you have a ministry of reconciliation. And so we must be able to reconcile with one another. Your ability to reconcile with others, especially with other Christians, speaks volumes of the gospel's influence in your life. Civil or trivial cases, 
can be resolved. They don't need to be taken to the secular courts. However, if it's a criminal case, just to give a little nuance here, if it's a criminal case, then Romans 13 tells us that government is a good tool for punishing evil. Don't feel like you can't utilize the tools that God has given you. Now, we can't cover all the nuances of that here. We're trying to go through the entire book of 1 Corinthians this morning. But if you have any questions about that, feel free to seek out another brother or sister, or feel free to to ask one of the pastors. We'd be happy to talk through that with you. But if none of that works, hear me, if none of that works, you can rest knowing that every evil will be punished. And you, through Christ, will stand justified even if no one on earth recognizes that justification. So you can withstand wrongdoing because of the gospel. The gospel has brought reconciliation between us and God. It can do reconciliation between us and one another. And if it doesn't, then you can rest in it, knowing that you still stand justified in the eyes of God. Problem four, excusing sexual immorality. The church in Corinth was excusing sexual immorality. This is the second half of chapter six. So some... We're excusing sexual sin simply because it took place outside of the body. They said, hey, we've been saved through faith in Christ. It's a spiritual salvation, so therefore what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. Paul says to them, no, 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 no. If you're united to Christ, you'll experience bodily resurrection just as he did, just as Christ did. Look at verse 14, chapter 6. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up. So therefore, Christian, what you do with your body matters. Your soul and your body both have been purchased by Christ. And if you've been purchased by Christ, then you've been united to Christ. And if you've been united to Christ, then his spirit takes up residence within you, which equips you to follow him with your body. What we do with the body matters. Look at verse 19. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Paul's alluding to the gospel. He says, you have the Spirit of God in you. You are now a walking temple of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because God has put that Spirit in you through faith. This is God's grace to you. Salvation is not free. It was attributed to you freely, but it needed to be paid for. And Christ has paid for it. So if you are in Christ, you have been purchased for salvation. So what we do with our bodies matters. The end of verse 19, we see you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Andy Nacelli, talking about this, he says, you don't have the right to do whatever you want with your body. Why? Because God owns it. And he owns it because he redeemed you at the cost of his son's life. So glorify God with your body by not committing sexual immorality. So friends, don't play around with sexual sin. Verse 18 says to flee from sexual immorality. Not endure it, not fight it, not even overcome it. Flee it. Flee from it. You're not strong enough. This is one person commenting on this pointed out that one of the most pious men, David, a man after God's own heart, fell to sexual immorality. One of the strongest men, Samson, fell to sexual immorality. And one of the wisest men, Solomon, fell to sexual immorality. You are not strong enough. 
Don't think more highly than you ought. And so if necessary, if you're wrestling with sexual immorality, whatever category that may be, take the steps that you need to do to fight against it. If that means deleting Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok, then do it. Restrict YouTube if you need to. Get rid of your smartphone. Give away the gaming console that has internet access. Cancel Netflix, Hulu, HBO Prime, etc. If you're dating, establish clear boundaries and stick to them. And look, I'm not saying just to try harder, just to grit your teeth and try harder. I'm saying depend on the Holy Spirit that God has put inside of you. Ask him for help. He is called our helper. When you need help, call on the Holy Spirit. He is there to help you. Notice in verse 19, we see your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. That comes before verse 20, which says glorify God in your body. And so if you're in Christ, call on the Holy Spirit that is within you so that he can help you glorify God with your body. All right, problem five. The, first, or the Corinthians had confusion around marriage. Confusion around marriage. This is in chapter 7. So in light of all the sexual issues, some had just decided, you know what? I'm done. I'm not, I'm not going to even be a part of marriage because I don't want to engage in any type of, or even be tempted to engage in any type of sexual immorality. And John MacArthur points it out this way. He said, some had the notion that because of all the sexual sin and marital confusion, it would be better to be single, even more spiritual, to be celibate. So Paul says now, rather, live as you're called. Whichever station God has put you in, be faithful there. If you're married, be faithful in your marriage. If you're single, be faithful in your singleness. Exercise self-control. Both marriage and singleness are glorious graces from God. However, marriage and singleness are not the problem. Sin is. The Corinthians thought the problem was marriage. So they tried to get out of it so that they wouldn't be engaged in any type of sexual sin. Marriage, however, reflects the gospel. As we just read in our church's statement of faith, it reflects the gospel. It reflects the relationship between Christ and his church. If you want to read more about that, turn over to Ephesians 5. We're not going to read it today, but just take some time to read Ephesians 5 this week. See, Christ pursued his bride. He pursued the church and he won her over. And now, he lovingly and sacrificially leads her. And she joyfully and willingly submits to his headship. And so if you're married, don't view your marriage as a hindrance to gospel work. Rejoice in your marriage and be faithful in it. If you're single, don't view your singleness as second class or as a hindrance to doing more effective gospel work. Rejoice in it and be faithful in it. And transitioning right in from that, very similar, you'll see in problem six that there was confusion also around engagement. Confusion around engagement. And so some were saying, okay, Paul, if we are called to, to live as we're called in whatever station God has placed us in, what about those engaged to be married? That's kind of a transition where we're single, but we're committed to, to being married. How should we handle that? Should we get out of the marriage or the engagement? Should we no longer pursue this? Or what would you say, Paul? And so if you see in verse 28 of chapter 7, Paul says, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And so Christians are free to marry, but, verse 39, only in the Lord. Don't be unequally yoked with someone who is 
not a believer. Don't be yoked together with. Don't be, be united with someone who has a different worldview. It's not going to go well for you. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, a life of misery. A life of misery is usually the lot of those who are united in marriage with the men and women of the world. So if you are a Christian, don't unite yourself in marriage to someone who does not hold a Christian worldview. You are, in Christ, free. It's the good news of the gospel. You're free. Part of your freedom is that you're free to remain single and be used greatly by the Lord. Part of your freedom is you're free to be married and you can be used great, greatly by the Lord. However, if you choose marriage, Paul gives a stipulation, it must be somebody who is also a Christian. So, brothers and sisters, your marital status does not determine your usefulness in the kingdom. Your marital status does not determine your degree of justification or your degree of righteousness. But the freedom that the gospel provides gives you freedom to pursue singleness or to pursue marriage, all of which is to be used for the glory of God. Problem seven. There was a disregard for weaker Christians. A disregard for weaker Christians. We see this in chapter, chapters 8 through the first verse of chapter 11. So Paul spends three chapters talking about this. And we can spend a long time on here, but for sake of time, we need to keep moving. But Paul takes three chapters to discuss this, this topic of disregarding weaker brothers and sisters. So chapter 8, broad overview. He says, be willing to lay down your rights for the sake of others. Chapter 9, Paul did this with the right, Paul did this with his right of being paid for gospel ministry. So he had that right, he could have enjoyed that right, but he says he's laying it down so that nobody can say to him, you're just in this for the money, Paul. And so he, he says, I'm laying down my right. I told you in chapter 8, lay down your rights, see me, I'm laying down my rights. And then in chapter 10, he says, do all of it to the glory of God. If you look in verse 24 of chapter 10, he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And in verse 33, Paul says, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And so we're to seek the advantage of others, not the advantage of ourselves, so that they may be saved. So that our evangelism and our discipleship may be more effective. And look, Again, the gospel addresses every one of these issues. Because Jesus did not seek his own advantage, salvation is now available. So no matter what your background is, salvation is available to you through Christ, who did not seek his own advantage, but sought your advantage. The Son laid down his rights so that we could be reunited to God. So that we can taste freedom from sin. And so brothers and sisters, don't insist on your own liberty. Be willing to lay down your rights for the sake of building up the body of Christ. This was Christ's attitude. Let it be yours too. Be aware of the ways your actions impact other members of the church. Be aware of the way your actions impact other believers, inside and outside of the church. Be willing to lay down your rights for their sake, so that they may be built up. Problem eight. You see the rejection of covenant headship and gender. The rejection of covenant headship and gender. And so God's design for gender and authority or headship 
was being challenged even in the first century of the church. So if you want to know what this uh, passage of 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 is all about, look no further than verse 3. Paul says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so Paul references three covenants right there. The new covenant, Christ and man. The marriage covenant, man and wife. And the covenant of redemption, the son and the father, from eternity past agreeing to, that the son would enter humanity and provide a way of salvation for God's fallen people. But then there's also three references to headship. So there's three references to covenants, and each of those covenants have a covenant head. Reference three references to headship there. Christ being the head of man, husband being the head of the wife, and the father being the head of Christ. Christ, however, in the flesh. So eternally past, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-equal, equally God. But when he enters humanity, he takes his flesh, takes on a human will, and he submits that to the will of the Father. Covenant headship is a good thing. It should be maintained especially in the church. Because apart from it, there is no salvation. If Christ would have went his own way and decided not to submit his earthly will to the will of the Father, then there would be no salvation for us. He said in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. Yes, there's any other way, but that would be the option that he could take. But there was no other way, and he was faithful. Godly authority and godly headship is for your good, and it's for God's glory. And so if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. I would encourage you, submit yourself. Consider submitting yourself to the authority of Christ. It is not an oppressive authority. It is a good and loving authority. He wants what is best for you. Call on Christ as your Savior, the one to remove your sin, and your Lord. We say, Christ is my Lord and Savior. We can, that can just roll off the tongue, right? But think about what that is. He's our Lord. He's the one that we submit to. He's the one who is our covenant head. Who we follow. He's our master. He's our Savior. The one who takes away our sin and pays the punishment that we should have paid. Christian, recognize, uphold, and rejoice in the way God has designed for men and women to relate to one another. It's a good thing. View godly headship and authority as a good thing, not an oppressive thing. Dress in culturally appropriate ways. What was happening in that passage is that the women were removing head coverings that signified their covenant headship, and, that they were, and men were putting on head coverings. There was a blurring, and the, uh, the, the distinction between the genders was no longer being upheld. And when God's design for men and women is blurred, and it's not upheld, then God's glory behind that design is also blurred. So when we uphold those distinctions, when we uphold God's design for men and women, it further glorifies God because it puts his design on display and it's us saying, yes, God, your ways are greater than my ways. Problem nine. There was an abuse of the Lord's Supper. And so this is in the latter half of 1 Corinthians 11. And so look, the Lord's Supper, the very sign 
that signified unity with Christ was being used in a divisive way. The Lord's Supper is meant to show our unity. When we participate in the Lord's Supper here in a little bit, it's to say, we who are many are one in Christ. And some in the Corinthian church who had plenty, the wealthy there, they were having their own meals. It's a more elaborate and nicer Lord's Supper. And then there were some who had nothing and just didn't even get to partake, or if they did, it would look very different. And Paul says this does not reflect the unity that the Lord's Supper is meant to reflect. In 1 Corinthians 10, if you go back just a, a page, verse 17, Paul says that because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So the Lord's Supper is to make many one. Baptism, another ordinance, it's Protestants, there are two ordinances or two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism brings one into many, and the Lord's Supper makes many one. Baptism brings one into many, and the Lord's Supper makes many into one. And in this passage, 1 Corinthians 11, the latter half of it, Paul uses the phrase, come together five times, saying, look, don't, don't participate this in a divided way. Come together, participate in this ordinance, this sign that is meant to show your unity, and do it as the family of God, when you are together. He says, wait for one another. Our, our statement of faith says this, is that the ordinances belong to the gathered church. So we want to be gathered when we do this, marking off believers from unbelievers and, and making the church visible on earth. But the Corinthians, they were viewing this ordinance as, as an individual act. They weren't considering the rest of the body. Paul says when you do that, it diminishes God's glory because what God has done in the gospel has not only united you to himself, but he's also united you with the physical body of Christ. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine points out that they weren't considering the rest of the body. Paul reads for, or writes, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And in verse 33, he says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Let's look, because Christ's broken body and shed blood unite us to God, the Lord's Supper is a unifying act. And through his sacrifice, we can be unified to God. We were previously separated from him because of our sin. We read in our statement of faith there, just on the back of your bulletin, that we willingly rebelled against God. But in God's kindness, he provided a way for us to be reunited to him. And it's through the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we remember every time we participate in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper identifies who has been united to Christ's spiritual body by faith, but it also identifies those who have been united to Christ's physical body, the local body, the church. As a Christian, consider the unifying nature of the Lord's Supper when we take it. Don't let it become rote. Consider what it does, that it signifies our unity with the invisible and visible body of Christ. Problem 10, misuse of the spiritual gifts. Now, these, these chapters, chapters 12 through 14, are perhaps some of the most hotly debated chapters in all of the Bible. And it was fun going through them. I'm grateful that we are done going through them. But, as an overview, chapter 12, Paul points out that there is 
one body of Christ with many members. These members are equipped with various kinds of spiritual gifts, but all of these gifts are used to upbuild the body. He says in verse 7 of chapter 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Chapter 13, he says that love must drive our use of those gifts. And then chapter 14, he makes the case that we should use those gifts in an orderly way. Otherwise, the body is not built up. But rather than using the gifts to lovingly build up the body, to lovingly build up the church, they were using the gifts. The Corinthians were using their gifts to build up themselves, to bring much attention to themselves. And their worship was chaotic and disorderly because of it. And when worship is chaotic and disorderly, Paul says nobody is benefited. Nobody is built up. And so love must drive our use of the gifts. And when love drives our use of the gifts, then we as the body of Christ, follow me here, when that love drives our use of the gifts, we as the body of Christ not only reflect Christ, but we also reflect the heart of Christ. Who, rather than building himself up, lowered himself so that we may be reunited to God through what he did on the cross. Out of love for his people, he endured the wrath of God so sinners like you and me wouldn't have to. Christ sought to build up others, to build up his people, so he lowered himself. And when it comes to the use of our gifts, we're to look around and find out how we can build up one another rather than building up ourselves. So Christian, understanding the gospel equips you to utilize your gifts to build up the church. And in problem 11... The denial of bodily resurrection. Paul saves this for the end. He spends the whole 15th chapter of this letter talking about the resurrection. Because some were denying that there was going to be a bodily resurrection. As a part, Paul starts by laying the foundation. In the first part of chapter 15, he lays the foundation that Christ has been raised. And then he goes from there, I love Paul's logic here, he goes from there to say that if Christ has been raised then you who are in Christ will also be raised. And he talks about how there's two different uh, resurrections, those who are resurrected in Christ and those who are resurrected to, to judgment. But he says all people, men and women, those who are saved and those who are not saved, will be resurrected. The question is where they will go after that. And then he addresses the issue head on in, in verse 12, chapter 15. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And so look, if Christ was bodily resurrected, he rose from the dead on the third day, then we too will be resurrected if we are united to him. And we, like Christ, will be raised to eternal glory, to enjoy what he he earned on our behalf. He's the one who lived a perfect life. We did not. We don't deserve the riches and the reward of a perfectly righteous life. Christ has earned that for us. And if you would confess your sin and believe in him, trust him to take away that sin, then you too, when your life is done, will raise bodily to eternal glory with Christ if you are united with him. Our whole faith rides on the resurrection. Proclaim it. Defend it. Teach it, find hope in it, remind one another of it, 
and especially remind one another of it when issues within the church pop up because the gospel addresses every issue that pops up. So don't get so fixated on one piece of the puzzle that you overlook the whole picture. And again, 1 Corinthians is an easy book to do that with. But to maintain unity within the church, we must return again and again and again to the gospel. Paul addressed every issue that came up in the Corinthian church with the gospel. He redirected their eyes to Christ and what Christ has done. The fact that God addressed our greatest problem through his son, Jesus Christ. That Christ on the cross paid the penalty for our sin. And that our division with God, the Corinthian church had plenty of divisions. Our greatest problem is that there was division with God. And our division with God through Christ can be fixed, can be repaired. And that our unity now with God is secured not in our works, but in Christ's finished work. When problems arise in our church, threatening our unity, and by God's grace, we've been spared of a lot of that. That's just the Lord's kindness on us. However, when that day comes, when problems arise, threatening our unity, like Paul to the Corinthians, let's point one another back to the gospel and trust that the gospel is sufficient to address that problem. Do you see that in 1 Corinthians? Do you see how Paul did that with each of these problems, these 11 problems? And you could break them down even more. Do you see how Paul did that? The gospel is sufficient. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that as a church? Do you believe that as an individual? Is the gospel sufficient? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great book. Thank you that even though the Corinthian church was rife with problems, you, in your kindness, still called them a church. That you, in your kindness, reminded them, through your Holy Spirit inspiring Paul, reminded them of the gospel. Lord, let us be a people who take every issue that pops up and go to the cure of the gospel. Be with us as we go from here, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.